You know, it was uh, several years ago that I was a college pastor. It seems crazy to me now that I was a college pastor of a big church in Dallas called Prestonwood. It's where I got ordained way back in the day. And uh, I remember we were at a retreat with, uh, we called it uh, the First Love Retreat. And speaking of how he first loved Austin, that's why we love. And so we took the guys, we took the girls, to put them in several places and came together several times. But we were at this big, huge house in Dallas. And I was up uh, after most of the teaching had been done for the day. We'd already had dinner. And I was up just kind of enjoying talking as a family that owned the house. And suddenly one of the college-age kids comes out and goes, Robert, you got to come out. you got to come out. We're doing this really cool thing. We want you to be a part of it came out and they were doing what many of you have done before, it's called a trust fall. You done one of those? You know, where you do this and then you just kind of fall backwards trusting they got me. And they weren't just doing a trust fall, they were doing it from on top of a playset, right? So you had to climb all the way up to the top of the playset and then you had to fall backwards from the top of the playset. I came out going, well, we're going to get, you can't do this. Like, I, I'm not here to supervise, and this is what you do? You're up there doing a trust fall off a play set. No way. And then it's like, Robert, come on, man. We've already done it like 10 or 12 times, and we want you to go up there. You're our friend. You're our leader. You're, you're our mentor. We want you because this would be great that you would trust us to catch you. What they didn't know was that five, six, seven years earlier than that, when I worked at a residential treatment center in Bedford, um, I had done a trust fall with the kids that I'd been mentoring there, and uh, it didn't go so well. They failed to catch Robert. I, I remember thinking, I'll never do this again for any reason. And it wasn't even on top of a play set. So, I mean, it was just kind of fall back, you know, like shoulder height, you know, fall back, we're going to catch you, I ended up landing on the back of my head and thinking, what was I thinking? Like, this was a bad idea. So all in my mind, I'm replaying that this is now 10 feet higher, and there's just no way I'm not doing this. I remember what happened last time. And so eventually they prevailed upon me. After I watched a couple of really big kids get caught, I thought, well, crap, they're going to catch Brandon. They can catch me, right? So I thought, oh, let's do this thing. But I had it in my mind, this is how people get injured. <laughs> this is how people make commitments to never do this kind of thing again. And I have been thinking about that story all week long as I've looked at Ruth chapter 4. It's like one giant trust fall. Really, if you want to say, the whole book kind of feels like God is putting people who believe in him in a place to fall backwards with arms crossed over chest and trust that he's got them, he'll catch them. And some of you today are wondering, is God worthy of my trust? Is he trustworthy? It's not that you haven't seen that he's trustworthy in the past. You have. You've seen his faithfulness. You're just wondering, will he do it again? Can he do it? Will he do it for me? I mean, I know he's done it for them, and I know that I've seen him do it for others. My question is, would he... Would he catch me again? Can I trust him again? Can I stand up even at a higher uh, level than ever before, lay back and know that he has got me? Well, Ruth chapter 1, we see what really, maybe you've heard of this, called the J-curve, where you start off happy, and then you go to sad, and then you go to happy again. Uh, have you seen that? Have you heard that? 
Um, the idea that almost every movie follows a J-curve, happy, sad, happy. Uh, if you look at chapter one, you've got a young couple that is heart full of dreams and heading off for a new start in life, and they leave the promised land of Israel, specifically the land of Bethlehem, that means the house of bread, and they're heading off to Moab, and they're going to go start again. And all within 10 or 12 verses, you see that dream crumble and fall. And uh, what follows is 10, 15 years of suffering and brokenness. And there they are at the bottom of that J-curve saying, oh gosh, what, what in the world were we thinking? This is a mess. And they don't come back the same. The man who is uh, the husband in chapter 1 is now dead. The two sons, Malon and Kilion, they're both dead. And you're left with a woman named Naomi, whose name means pleasant. And she's with a daughter-in-law named Ruth and another named Orpah. And Orpah goes home, says, look, I'm not staying with this mess. I'm going back to my country. I'm going back to my people. But Ruth says, I'm going where you go, wherever you go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. She absolutely commits at the bottom of the J-curve that no matter what, I'm staying with you, Naomi. And in chapter 2, we see two broken widows return to Bethlehem, the house of bread. They're broken, they're wounded, they're disoriented, they've got barely a hope, a hope in their heart, but that hope is placed in the only one who can meet and satisfy their hope, the God of Israel. They lament, but they lament honestly. And then they start to see the breeze of God's goodness and God's providence and God's Hesed love, his one-way love, his covenant love that is not a contract. It's a love that says, I'm loving you no matter what, even if you don't love me back. And they start to believe in God, and God starts to pour out kindness and blessing. Chapter 3, we see an all-in move. We see Ruth go and uh, basically ask Boaz to marry her in the middle of the night. It's a crazy, beautiful story. And what happens between chapter 3 and 4 is only a matter of a couple of hours. So I want you to listen as I read, and I want you to do your best. Friends, hear me. You're not here by accident this morning. You're here because God brought you here. He wanted you to hear something deeper, more profound than anything I could ever imagine to say. God knows how to communicate through the scriptures to your heart. He knows your story. He knows what's behind you, and he knows what's in front of you. And he has something to say to you this morning. And so I want you to listen for the voice of God through the words of Scripture this morning. Listen to these words. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, my friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down, and he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And so I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem, buy back, if you will redeem this land, then redeem it. 
But if you are not willing, then tell me, that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And so he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, <clears throat> The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem the land for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Let's stop there for a moment and have a look at what's going on in this passage. It says that Boaz had gone up to the gate and evidently early in the morning. If you'll remember from chapter 3, Ruth has come at midnight and taken the covers off of Boaz's feet and he woke up. And then he tells her, don't be afraid, daughter. I will do what is necessary to redeem you. But there is one piece of business that has to happen first. In this context, there's something called Leverite marriage. And if you've been with us all the way through the study, you already know what this is. But in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 25, we see this welfare system set up by God for the nation of Israel within family systems that if you have a woman whose husband dies, the brother of that dead man is supposed to marry the widow and raise up children in his name. And if there's not a brother, well, then we have to move to a cousin. And if there's not a cousin, we'll go to a second cousin and we'll so on and so on. But there is this thing that, that God has arranged so that there can be care for those who are vulnerable, for those who are exposed. And so Boaz has told Ruth, I'll take this role. I'm in the family line, but there's someone closer to me. And so after staying up probably the whole night after that, thinking about what would come next, Boaz gets up early in the morning. Boaz goes to the city gate. Now I want you to know that the city gate in that time would have been a gate in a traditional sense, but on each side of the gate there would be four rooms. Two on this side, two on this side. The ones closest to the entrance would be more public, and the ones on the outsides of that would be more private, where business could get done. So picture city gate as more like a city council slash marketplace slash place where you can gossip, right? That's really what he gets up and goes to. And it says, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, meaning the family member that was closer to Naomi than him, this man came, and so Boaz said, Friend, turn aside and sit set set down in here. I want you to know when it says, Behold, the Redeemer came, our English ears would miss the fact that it actually says, Lo and behold, the sky came. Or just look who happened to come by. What the author is trying to say is that God was providentially at work, arranging this whole interaction. It wasn't just that Boaz got up early after not sleeping all, uh, all evening. It's that God was at work arranging this. Providence is all through this book. The idea that God is moving things around behind the scenes to arrange this whole interaction. I hope that when you read the Bible and you look at your own life, that you can say what I can say right now, is that many times... When I look back at my life, if I see it as a story with chapters, 
I can see the good hand of God at work arranging certain things in my life that I could have never been prepared for, but he saw coming. It gives me comfort. That's what's going on here. And so Boaz says to this man, I want you to turn in here and sit down. And I want to take ten elders from the city of Bethlehem, and I want them to be a witness to this. And what does he lead with? What does he say is going to happen? He says, Naomi, who you know, who was married to Elimelech, likely uncle Elimelech. It's likely that Boaz's dad and this nameless man had fathers who were brothers, right? That's what a lot of the commentators agree is probably the situation. Naomi has come back from the land of Moab. She's selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And so I thought I'd tell you about it. Do you want to buy this piece of land? Because you're first in line. You have the right to buy back this land, to redeem this land. It's yours first, and then I come after you. Why doesn't he just say, do you want to marry Ruth? Because she just came to visit me last night. You know, I got it bad. I'm in love. Now, he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, do you want to buy this land because you're first in line and then I come after you? Very, very likely that there are three tracts of land separated by what's in the middle, which belong to Elimelech. And so he says to this guy, do you want to buy a piece of land that separates you and I? And the guy says, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I do want to buy that piece of land. Now, we know the end of the story. We know that it isn't going to end up going to this guy. But in a moment, you kind of go, oh, no, this is not good. I mean, this really isn't about land. For Boaz, this isn't about land. He's got money. He's got land. What he wants, he wants Ruth. We know that from reading the rest of this story. This guy says, well, I'm sure I'd love to have the land. I will redeem it. And then Boaz says, the day that you buy the land or the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order that you might perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. What does he just say? <coughs> when you decide to redeem this land, you are with it acquiring certain responsibilities. Now, again, this could be offensive to us. It's like she's like a piece of property. It's not that really. What it is, it's, it's again, it's that Leverite's vow, that marriage. If this guy who is nameless, why isn't, I mean, why not just give the guy's name? Well, because in light of the story of Israel, remember, this is only several generations, two generations later that the details of all that's happening here are now being written down. It would be pretty easy to find this guy be easy enough to say, oh, so you were a Limelech's nephew and you decided not to buy in, huh? So it doesn't say the guy's name, or it could just be this. The guy's really not that important to the story of the life of the nation of Israel. You see, you know, his name isn't that important because he doesn't play a very big part. I suspect that it's both. So he says, hey, when you take the land, you're also taking Ruth's the widow, and a financial responsibility for her, but also any children you have will not really carry on your name. They're going to carry on the name of 
Melon, the dead son. Now this is how it would work, right? We want the land to stay in the family, and because of that, if you have children with Ruth, someday they're going to grow up and they're going to inherit the, the land that you are buying right now. And instead of your name going on in history, Malon's children will go on through you. Does that make sense? <laughs> Buy the land, get the, the widow Ruth. And by the way, when you get Ruth, any children you have are going to inherit that land and the name is not going to be your name anymore. So watch and see in your mind's eye that the guy who wanted the land, all of a sudden his expression has totally changed. What does he say? Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now what the heck is going on here? I mean, the guy wanted the land because the land would benefit him, but that's all he wanted. It was sure, it would help Naomi, great. But now that you're talking about this uh, whole thing of raising up children for our dead cousin, no, I don't want to do that. I have my own future to think about. I have my own legacy to think about. And so while I want the land, I don't want this. I want the land, I just don't want Ruth. And I don't want the responsibility of raising up children for our dead cousin. No, thank you. I'm out. I've done the math. And I've realized that the price is just too steep. And so I'm out. You go ahead. Now, is there some part of you that goes, wait a minute. You had a chance by God's grace to marry into the lineage, by God's sovereign plan, into the lineage of King David. And also the lineage of Jesus. And you just said, well, the price is too steep. I'm not doing it. And then, I mean, let's just also admit the fact that everybody in town, except this guy apparently, doesn't know. But everybody else knows that Ruth is a great catch. Right? You can't read this book and not love Ruth and love Boaz. So you had a chance to honor God. You had a chance to marry a wonderful girl. And you had a chance to raise up a lineage that would go on to honor and glorify God by bringing about a Savior. But in your mind, you did the quick math and said, nah, I got to think about my future. <laughs> right? Isn't it kind of ironic that the guy that was most concerned about his future is nameless to history? We, he was most concerned about his own heritage, his own legacy, and we don't even know his name. I mean, I want you to think about the fact that if we could time travel back, imagine if we, we could somehow time travel back and, and go and say to this guy, you know, I, friend to friend, let me just tell you something. This would honor God if you said yes. It would. I mean, you are a redeemer in this family. You have the right, the privilege, the opportunity to redeem the land, but also uh, to be a blessing to Ruth, to be a blessing to her mother-in-law. You have the chance to do that. It would honor God. You should. Too, she's a great girl. Like, I don't know what you think you're passing on, but this is a great girl. No. Not going to do it. You know what? I know you're worried about your future, but let me tell you something. I can't tell you what's going to happen as a time traveler because of the temporal, the, what is it, the, the prime directive. I can't tell you what's going to come your way. Temporal prime directive. Come on, there's got to be some trekkies out there with me. I can't tell you, but I can tell you this. Without giving you details, if you just trust God with your legacy and your heritage and your future, he might surprise you. 
Like, wouldn't you want to say that to this guy who has done some quick math and decided the cost is too steep and I'm out? And the main reason is because i got to think about my future? I mean, you kind of want to scream at the guy. Do you have any idea what you're leaving on the table here? Do you have any idea the staggering loss that you are pushing back because you want to think about your future and your legacy? You're going the wrong direction. He just couldn't see it. We can because we've read the end of the book, right? Like we know there's a book called Ruth and 3,000 years later and thousands of miles away. We're studying it here in Georgetown. He couldn't see it. Could we? Could we right now? I sometimes think about my mom, my grandmother, her mom. And Monica's mom, who are in heaven right now, that they were, uh, all of them uh, died with cancer. And cancer's ugly. Cancer's very ugly. It's a terrible thing to, to witness. But I think to myself, what would it be like if I could sit down for just a few minutes with my mom or my grandmother, who was really kind of a matriarch of faith in our family, and just say, talk to me for a minute. Talk to me about what you've seen. What's it like? What would you say to me about the life that I'm living now? In light of what you've seen and known. You're there. You're inside this. You're in, you are in the paradise that Jesus described. So how would you tell me? Because Psalm chapter 90 verse 10 says that our lives are 70 years, if through the strength, 80 Right, And so if I am at 50, almost 3, I know it sounds crazy, but you know, you'd think I'm 30, but it's ministry is hard on a guy, right? Like cause you lose your hair, all of that. But, but the truth is, okay, so I have maybe 20, 30 years, I don't know. But what do you say, you, mom, grandma, what do you say about how I should live this next 20 or 30 years, God willing that I even get them? Because I could end up like this nameless redeemer saying, you know, it's just too high a cost to take my heritage, my future, my uh, legacy and not try to guard them for myself, not try to hold on and collect to myself the things I think matter most. You're asking me to trust fall. You're asking me to let go of my reputation, my preferences, my time, my convenience. You're asking me to let go and trust that he's going to catch me. Yeah. Didn't Jesus say it in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25? He who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Amen. Nameless Redeemer, I know you think that you're protecting your future, you're protecting your good, you're protecting whatever, but let me tell you something. You're actually wasting the biggest opportunity, the biggest fork in the road you've ever seen, and you can't see it of your view of your future and how you want to protect it. Listen, if you, if you had a timeline that started over here, we'll say, invisible point in time, starts right here, and it runs all the way over to here, that moment, that invisible little speck over there is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it runs all the way through the 
the centuries, all the way through uh, the millennia, and it runs up to this very moment, right? So here's the beginning, running all through time. Here happens the cross, and, or wherever you want to place that, and, and then here's this very moment. And we're going to live on this timeline, maybe 80 years if you're strong. How big is 80 years on this timeline? If this is Genesis 1-1, and it runs all the way to this very moment right here, how big's your 80 years on that timeline? Now, I can't see you as well as I'd like. In fact, it feels a little dark here to me this morning, but uh, how big is it? Something like that? Smaller? It ain't much. Can we agree to that? And yet, in that little bitty time called life by faith, I'll make choices and decisions that will affect eternity. Can I see that? Can you see that? That by letting go, by saying to God, I am scared. I am scared that if I let go and I don't try to guard and protect my future and my legacy and my heritage and all that, if I let go and give my life 100% into your good care, your hands, if I let go of control and a sense of my ability to manipulate things to protect my future, if I let go of that and say, God, I'll give you that in deeper and fuller ways, will you catch me? Will you catch me? You know, there's a book that if you haven't read it, it's, a, it's called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I just want you to hear these words. It's, at the, it's the very last chapter of it. And I think it's some of the best writing he ever did. He says at the end of Mere Christianity, the principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give yourself up and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes, and every day the death of your whole body, and in the end, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Now hear this, great line. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But if you look for Christ, you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Golly. We know from reading the story that at this time, the guy says, I'm out, the price is too steep, and you want to scream. <laughs> You have no idea what you just left. But Boaz knows. Boaz knows, and so what does he do? He pulls off one of his sandals, because this is the tradition in that time. Pulls off one of his sandals, and he says, with a sandal in the air, You're all witnesses today. I have bought back that piece of land, and I have acquired Ruth, and she's mine, mine, mine. She's mine. And everybody starts clapping and cheering and says, May she be to you, Boaz, like Leah and Rachel, the 
the patriarch's wives that built up the nation of Israel. May she be to you like Tamar. Now this is a long and ugly story in Genesis that basically says there was also at one time a young woman who was a widow, was an outsider to the promises of Israel, but she married in as well, and she was fruitful. And that story is another sermon for another time, but essentially everybody starts clapping and cheering because they can see what God has done in redeeming this girl and holding out the promise. Friends, I want to invite you into something. I want you to trust the Savior who Isaiah 53 says, He was our Redeemer who purchased us with His blood. By His stripes we're healed. That He was crushed for our iniquities. He paid the price. When He saw the cost had gone up to save us, He said, I'll pay any price, any price, even to my own body crucified that they might be saved that's a savior you can trust so here it is god if i give up this control will you catch me you know what the answer is i already did friends if you're dealing with something you're scared to trust god with right now money relationship Something You've got to be honest about something you don't want to be honest about in business. You've got, to, you've got to confess something. You're scared to let go of something to follow God. Let me tell you something. Your view of God is way too small. He's already caught you. He's already given his son that we might be saved. He's already saved you. He's already got you. All you need to do is come to him in brokenness and empty hands and say, God, I'm still scared that you won't catch me this time. And I'm sorry that's the way I feel, but that's where I'm at. Will you just show me again that you love me? That you've got me, that I'm safe in your good hands. You can trust him. His son was given. How will he not also give us with him all things freely? Pray with me.